Morning, hoes. All right, let's get right to it. Tuesday, you know, we take back America. Every Tuesday, myself, Professor Harvey K. from the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, reclaiming that radical, progressive history of America. Well, we we knocked out FDR's Economic Bill of Rights on Tuesday. Well, we we started the discussion Tuesday because today we're gonna bring that bad boy to the 21st century. Professor Harvey K., myself, and Alan Minsky. He's the executive director for Progressive Democrats of America. They have put together the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, and I think this is how we win. So let's break it down. My name's Hartzell. We take back America with Professor Harvey K. and Alan Minsky. Good day to be a Kansas City. Always, we'll see you in the morning. Bye. Professor Harvey K., my brother, the Professor Emeritus from the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Now, Professor K., usually I would put you over like a real rock star, but sir, I got to cut you off right there because we have a guest. We brought company over today, Alan Minsky. He is executive director for the Progressive Democrats of America. Professor K. and I, last week, we got into FDR's Economic Bill of Rights from the 44th State of the Union. Let's go ahead and fast forward now if that was the prequel here we are to the sequel the 21st century economic bill of rights being championed by yourself alan minsky and our very own professor harvey k welcome to the show my brother how do we get here thank you for this moment because as harvey and i say i think this is a moment that we're about to make a movement yeah we we need to because um you know, the United States of America is an incredibly wealthy, wealthy country. And uh, the assets are uh, weighted uh, heavily into the hands of very few. But the balance sheets of households in the United States are, are still significant. And with some uh, really doable adjustments to the economic social contract in the United States, we can, I think, turn the country into a unique country of a very prosperous middle class society with next to no poverty, no homelessness. We have the assets and capacity to have uh, the best health care in the world. We certainly have the university research capacity to anchor the achievement of great health care, unlike any other society in the country, though we should, of course, share that with the whole world, as we all should with medical knowledge. And, uh, you know, certainly we have the industrial capacity to house everybody, to have everybody when they go to do whatever job they're doing across society. If the market or the public sector says you're doing a job that's that we all have we've all essentially determined through the economic process needs to be done. You should have a living wage. It should be your one job that you need to be able to live comfortably, to have a stable middle-class environment with guaranteed paid vacation. And of course we should have Medicare for all so that everybody has health care, and we should have guarantees for affordable housing. All of this is doable. It's not utopian. And we know it's not because it actually exists in much of the rest of the world. 
And going back to where Harvey, of course, correctly anchors this, many of the countries which have much more stable, prosperous middle-class societies, but less of a wealth inequality and not so many poor people, are countries across the world where the sort of economic structures of those society were put in motion after World War II by veterans of the Roosevelt administration and people who were coordinated with the Truman administration, writing constitutions after World War II that guaranteed basically social democracy with effectively a de facto economic bill of rights. Never was adopted here. However, what is true is that the Roosevelt administration established a template for, it wasn't equally distributed and there were serious, serious issues and faults, particularly because of American structural racism and the historical period in which uh, you know, FDR was in coalition with Dixiecrats among the Democratic Party. But the template was laid for a prosperous middle-class society. And in, what was it? 58 out of 62 years following 1932 election, the Democrats held the House of Representatives. Then the break happens with Rooseveltian economics in the Clinton years, and the Republicans have held the House of Representatives for 20 out of 28 years. The winning hand for the more progressive party in this country is to actually have progressive economics that go along with it. We haven't had it in this country for three to four decades. We need it. It's doable. It's realistic. We just need to let the public know to shout it from the mountaintop, to shout it from this radio station, to shout it from this radio show, let people know this is doable. And that from, of course, my organizational uh, perspective, it is clearly the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that right now is in alignment with this vision. It probably has some messaging problems. <laughs> and we're here to try to help correct those. And the messaging problems isn't necessarily because anything they're messaging now right now is wrong. We certainly have to do many of the things that are the focal points of the messaging along the lines of what the Democratic Party does, but it's an absence, which is an emphasis on the economy and the economic program that really is the cornerstone of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in the wake of the back-to-back -back Sanders campaigns. I mean, you look at the work that Pramila Jayapal and the squad do up on Congress. It's not about, you know, these culture war messaging issues. It is about basically strengthening the hands economically of poor, working, and middle-class communities. Republican Party isn't doing it. The mainstream of the Democratic Party and the Romney wing of the Republican Party, they're basically the political conservatives now. They want to conserve the status quo. And only the progressive Democrats represent a transformation of the economic social contract along the lines of what Americans want when it's spelled out clearly. And that's what Harvey and I are trying to achieve with drafting a 21st century economic bill of rights built upon the work of people from Franklin Roosevelt back in 1944 through A. Philip Randolph, by the way, through the Democratic Party platform in 1960, through Martin Luther King Jr., uh, all the way up through to very recently, after the Sanders campaign in 2016, three very excellent uh, and prominent progressive economists, um, Derek Hamilton, uh, Mark Paul and William Darity wrote a great piece in the American Prospect. And now some uh, state legislators in Wisconsin have introduced their version. And we have our version. And it's, uh, it's still a work in progress. We're going to make a few uh, adjustments to the language. Uh, we've written it out as eight bullet points in our last article. We know at least next time it's going to be at least nine, probably ten. And what we're going to do actually is split off the first one into two. We do think we do need to have as the second entry 
that we need to have the right to unionize and to have a voice in the workplace through collective bargaining. But by separating it out from point number one, we make clear that the, the absolute foundation of this is the idea, again, as I said earlier, you work a day, you have a day's work, you do it five days a week, seven to eight hours a day, you deserve a living wage, not to live in poverty, not to live in precarity. And so that's going to be number one. Number two is going to be the, the right to unionize and to collectively bargain. And it's going to go from there. But again, it's built upon this previous work. And the main point is right now at the 2022 midterms, we have to fight as best we can to win these elections right now. We're in a historical moment with an incredible degree of social and historical turbulence. I mean, obviously, we see the geopolitical turbulence in Ukraine. But even before that, with the COVID pandemic, we see a lot of shifting in American society about the relationship of the average person to the workplace and as such to the general economy. And undergirding that is a sense that the social economic contract of this country went off the rails and it hasn't gotten back on. And the public basically became aware of that with the 07 housing crash, the 2008 Great Recession that lasted for many years. And if you do think about things like the American dream, I actually believe we know that the 07, how the rather 06, 05, 04 housing boom was a house of cards built upon things like ninja loans, which were all going to collapse on people. But at least at that hour, about three decades plus into neoliberalism, about three decades into neoliberalism, the average person could believe that they could achieve the American dream. Now, they were doing it through this arithmetic magic that turned, turned out to be complete hocus pocus along the ninja loans, et cetera, but they thought they were getting this house. They were getting the American dream. You go from 2008 forward, tell me where anybody really thinks that's part of what the American economic social contract is. Well, we want to return back to that. We want to return back and, and, and draw back in the possibility that you work a day's work and you have access to that. Because let's say, let's say you fall in love with someone, whoever you might fall in love with, right? And you decide to build a life with them and you both have living wage jobs all of a sudden again homeownership becomes a possibility in a realm of possibility. You don't have college student debt and you can start building the life and you can have the freedom that comes with economic security, more vacation time to really fulfill your life in the way that you want to fulfill your life. And now I'm starting to echo the best parts of the long arc American tradition as exemplified by Thomas Jefferson for all of the severe and many problems penned in the Declaration of Independence, the line about the right to happiness which was a pretty unique contribution to the language of the kind of uh, politics of the world that people were aspiring to. And it has been definitional to Americans, that Americans in this country, for all the gruesome aspects of American history, that something here can be constructed to provide people with that. And it's damn right time that we redeem those promises in this society. And, um, and as we do it, and if we do it, by the way, this is not in the Economic Bill of Rights, I'll say this too. The United States of America, um, again, coming out of a, a horrible, uh, genocidal history, uh, levels of exploitation and human exploitation that, that rival any of the worst behavior that we know anywhere socially and on a grand scale uh, in the history of humanity. But now we are starting to arrive at what is clearly the most diverse country in the history of the world. Um, and in an era in which, you know, reactionary ethno-nationalism is, is present around the globe, the United States in a globalized society because of technology and transportation, we can really be a model for the world but we have to seize that and we have to make it equitable and available for all. So boy, 
that was long-winded, but I think I like what I said. My brother, <laughs> I will never cut off somebody preaching. I will never do that. But you gave us so many ways to to jump off, and it's a bit of a two-part. So, Alan, you're gonna you're gonna lead this, and then Harvey, please jump in. Let's dig. I don't in. have to do anything. My work is done. <laughs> <laughs> Any wisdom that I may have produced. I credit to the inspiration of my friendship with Harvey. And that is why that is why I am so thoroughly thrilled about this project because it is both practical and rooted in that promise of it all. You know, when 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 Harvey comes on and every Tuesday we talked, you know, people think we're talking in clouds here, but we are patriots in the most patriotic way because what is the pursuit of happiness if it is not a, a roof over your head, if it's not being able to go get your health care taken care of, to go to school, to insert just life type things. So let's talk about what you all have. This is at least the the foundation to start off with. Number one, the right to a useful job that pays a living wage and to a voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining. And you said you already maybe maybe want to split that up. And I heartily, heartily agree with that. And I thought about it after we got off our own conversation, Alan, and I thought, what makes that all the more significant is the right to a useful job that pays a living wage addresses the, the question of, yeah, an imperative to produce and to create through our labors and also to receive a living wage, not to have to suffer, not to have to literally secure an earned income tax credit. Literally, we want a living wage. And to break that off, because that's a very decidedly material experience, to break off the workplace, collective bargaining, the right to a union is important because what we want to make very clear in this Economic Bill of Rights is that this is a contribution to the development of democratic life in America and prosperity. So the idea is why not extend the idea of freedom, equality, and democracy to whatever extent we can on it, call it a grand experiment, if you like, into the workplace and to guarantee it. Because in 35, the National Labor Relations Act, we thought guaranteed, not, well, I wasn't alive, none of us were, but we thought would have guaranteed it. It actually placed the federal government behind workers' efforts to organize, create a union, and bargain collectively. But by way of laws like the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 and later failures on the part of the Democrats to really counter the class war of Republicans, the, that right was whittled down to, well, you can try to organize a union, okay? So the thing is, to break that apart into two, I, I think is really, really strong and powerful. And I also love that you're not putting a number. It's fluid. I know that we're fighting for 15, but 15 is the floor. It's not the ceiling when we talk about $15 an hour. Number two, the right to a comprehensive quality health care. Number three, the right to a complete cost-free public education and access to broadband internet. If I'm not mistaken, I, I may even have sent this to both of you at some time. Um, the right to complete cost-free public education, we want to make clear that that extends through college and, and beyond. But the other thing is the access to broadband internet. I have to say that for those of us who live in cities and seem to have you know access readily, it may not seem that pressing, but folks out in, in rural areas. Missouri. Missouri. And, and by the way, I do believe there was a rural economic bill of rights issued during these last few years 
that really did have that at the heart of their demands. And my students who are now living back out in central and northern Wisconsin, the truly agricultural part of the state, and we have plenty of farms all over the state, but out there, the cities are small. They're not large like they are here on the, on the lakeshore. Broadband internet access for many people is a serious question. Not unlike back in the 30s, the very question of getting electricity into farmsteads. Number four, the right to a decent, safe, affordable housing. And at any point, my friends, cut me off. I'm going to ask Alan to jump in on that one because he's recently attended a, a housing conference and you can't get much more imperative than, as you said, the roof over your head. It's a right we have to hold to. And I live in the city council district in Los Angeles that I'm quite a distance away from where Skid Row is and yet Skid Row in Los Angeles. And so my city council district has more homeless people in it than any city in America, except the totality of Los Angeles, of course, and I believe New York City. And so my city council district has about 40,000 homeless people in it. And it's, I don't know, um, you know, Hartzell, if you've seen the images of LA Skid Row uh, in recent years, and certainly during the COVID pandemic, but, you know, people come here uh, from around the world and they, they, you know, politicians and social scientists and one of the quips everybody says is it looks like the third world and people are quick to say, no, this is worse than the third world. You know, in most quote unquote third world countries, yeah, you have sort of shanty towns, you have makeshift domiciles, maybe on the outskirts of the town where the working class get pushed or right in the center of, of population centers, of course. Um, but there are domiciles. And um, this, is, this is outrageous. And it is an outrageous human rights violation uh, on our society, we all know that many of the people who are living there have severe mental health problems. Many don't, though. And then many acquire them, too, because it's an incredibly traumatic experience, by the way, incredibly painful and traumatic experience to be homeless in the United States of America. So on the one hand, it's a moral issue. But boy, is it economically achievable. I mean, we can certainly build domiciles. Now, the structure of housing and property rights in the United States are, are complex, and uh, they're certainly askew in terms of where we need to be, in terms of having a society that values the welfare of all the people in the society, but even of really everybody who's not in the investor class, okay? And um, we know that the barriers to this um, are, of course, due to financialization, due to various sort of power structures in the society, but there's also a lot of allure to maintaining the status quo from average homeowners. There's a lot of nimbyism going on these are things, it's, so it's, it's an issue where on paper, right off the bat, you're going to have universal agreement, but we have to prepare ourselves and we got to get, so we got to get it down in something like an economic bill of rights, because on the surface, everybody knows this is right. I mean, if you're Christian, my word, I mean, how much is Jesus's teachings about this, you know, and, um, and yet uh, the, the personal political practice on this front is very difficult. And there are a lot of barriers to overcoming it, which makes it all the more important that this be laid down in something like an economic bill of rights. There's so many folks that say now, well, it's an unsolvable situation in San Francisco or Los Angeles. Democratic side, the reactionary Republicans, they want to go to these places and use it as if it's a tourist attraction. And then they'll say it's too late to do anything about it. And I, like we just said, I, I don't think that's true. No, there's definitely many, many, many things that can be done about it, and there are very different ways uh, of approaching it, and we have to start uh, utilizing those and just pretty much mandating that everybody gets a house. By the way, I mean, if you were to come to Los Angeles Skid Row, and I'm sure you, you know Hartzell and most listeners know right now that um, 
the, the, the money of oligarchs from around the world is pouring in to the elite population centers in the world. So uh, properties in London, Paris, um, New York City, they are skyrocketed, okay? In Los Angeles, adjacent to Skid Row are all these new glass and steel, uh, apparently apartment towers, not exactly in Skid Row, but very close to there, right behind the Staples Center, just to the sort of south and east of the downtown tallest skyscrapers. These are speculative investments, okay? They're gonna go largely unoccupied. Now, on top of that, we also have to be realistic that those office towers, especially after COVID, we do not know right now what the rate of occupancy is gonna be of those steel and glass towers. Well, left to the market, they sure as heck aren't gonna be filled with people who need places to live, but maybe they should be. Moving on now to number five on our 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, the right to a clean environment and a secure planet. This one, Alan and I are going to definitely work over in the next week, I bet. It's that we want them to have a little more punch, you might say. Yeah, so secure is going to go away and it's going to be replaced by um, healthy, at least. And one of the reasons there is uh, apparently security and secure planet even is apparently a meme. Sorry, but this is terrible to say live on air, but people should know it, that um, the sort of proto-fascist uh, authoritarian right-wing movements around the world apparently have secure planet in their talking points. But okay, that's good to know. We can, t- we can definitely take that one up. Maybe this number five will turn into five and six, perhaps. We'll, we'll, we'll work well, there, that out. Yeah, I have another possible five and six. We'll get down to that later. This session, let's face it, this is like a, a, a working session almost. Kansas City, you're a fly on the wall. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. I actually think that's that's really, really cool. Number six, the right to a meaningful endowment of resources at birth and a secure retirement. Let's definitely break into this one because I've heard a lot of folks talking about baby bonds. There are some ideas of things like this. What are you all talking about? Yeah, well, I'll just, I'll give the historical reference and I'll, I'll let Alan take it away then. When we were dealing with this, when we were addressing this, this first of all had to do with the question of the distribution of wealth, fundamentally. And Alan was really was determined to enable me to see the imperative of having something in here that would address that. And believe me, as a socialist, he didn't have to work hard. It was a matter of how are we going to word this thing. I was reminded that when Thomas Paine in Agrarian Justice in the 1790s proposed social security, old age pensions and related things, he, he spoke not only of affording older folks retirement, he also spoke of the imperative of, a, of preventing poverty by empowering young people with some kind of grants of money that they could then use for education, to buy land, and set themselves up in business. And I can tell you that what really empowered my thinking and enabled me to really come to see what Alan was getting at was Thomas Paine, which our listeners won't be surprised to hear, I'm sure. (laughs) Okay, So the meaningful endowment of resources has to do with that idea that we're going to propel life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and not just hope people can catch up. Alan, you can take it from there if you'd like. What I want to say, too, about this is, um, yes, of course, um, we were in the actually the phrase comes exactly from and we, we, we in, this, in the paragraph that's below the Bill of Rights that we're reading out loud right now. We acknowledge that some of the language we, we you know, we're not here to, you know, be poets and uh, 
and, and you know, claim uh, intellectual property rights over this. This is a, you know, a, a shared project across society. And so that particular phrase did come from the work of Derek Hamilton, William Darity, and Mark Paul. And I believe Derek Hamilton specifically has worked closely on the issue of baby bonds uh, with Senator Cory Booker, for instance. And so that is very much uh, the, uh, an example of it. And of course, the child tax credits that if you have a child like, like I do, um, was uh, I was a beneficiary of that. Uh, just this past year till they ran out, even though they were massively popular and they reduced child poverty in half, go figure, right? And um, so that would fit into that. I do want to say that in number three, which is the one on the complete cost-free public education, and number six, the right to a meaningful endowment of resources at birth, I'm wondering how we are going to fit childcare into this. Because it has been pointed out to me that if we're going to go complete cost-free public education, which can be seen and read as K through university, it does leave out child care. Yeah, so it's funny, going, it's yeah, funny not, to bring that up because I don't know if we were in the conversation where this came up today or yesterday or whatever. But today I was thinking of that very thing. That yeah. that does need coverage. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So it either goes into three or six. It could read the reading, the right to a meaningful endowment of resources of birth, comma, um, free child care and a secure retirement. Uh, so that could be number six. But maybe child care fits in better at number three. We'll see how the language. In that sense, we're looking for the poetry. Let's keep going on. We're going to finish it up with these two. Number seven, the right to a sound banking and financial services. Anything on this one, fellas? No, but I think one that we may want to take up. And we, we have eight now. And you saw that we're going to nine as we split up number one into two. The other adjustments would all fit into the, the numbers as listed. But potentially a ninth could be the right to a fair and economically equitable justice system. And I haven't really bounced this off of Harvey, but let's face it, everybody knows in the United States of America that of course we have a uh, historically and through to the present racist justice system. We also have one where if you're wealthy, we have one, just, one justice system for you and for everybody else, let alone the poor, you know, they're just really going to be up against it in the United States justice system. So we do not have economics come into our justice system, and we have to have an economically balanced justice system. So I'm going to be bouncing that around with Harvey. Yeah, uh, will be f And before you read the next one, we've already changed this, but I do have to tell you, and I'm going to call Alan out on this. He's supposed to have sent me in typed form. Ah, it's been a busy day. Been busy. Wait a second. I am the professor. The assignment was due today. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. And number eight, and I think this is just as important as number one, and I don't think we talk about this part enough, the right to recreation and participation in public life. I think I mentioned this to you in a previous uh, conversation, Hartzell, that the commission that was created to come up with plans for the post-war years actually articulated this right to recreation, which FDR spoke in, the for, in his Economic Bill of Rights speech, but they put it differently. They said the right to adventure. And I know that sounds fantastical, but I also have to say that our friend Nina Turner really did like that articulation. And then the other thing is to put a little comedic spin on it. When we were doing a show a couple of weeks ago with some people in South Florida, they laughed and thought that might conjure up in the mind recreational marijuana. Okay, so. <laughs> Yeah, we're changing that one. Uh, we know off the bat to the right to recreation and participation in civic and democratic life, mm -hmm. uh, public life, 
a little a little bit you know what's public what's private that begs that question so participation in civic and democratic life kansas city do you hear that that's actual updating happening in real time kansas <laughs> city right that's right that's right um, you bet. And, and the one thing about recreation i definitely want that word in there but of course that is supposed to carry the weight of the right to a paid vacation and a job and uh, if you know, if in time, if this is ever going to move towards being, you know, a second bill of rights, literally in the U.S. Constitution, um, then it would be whatever, uh, you know, would be the amendment numbers, wherever we are at that point in history, the next 10, um, then we may have to clarify the right to recreation, vacation and participation in public and civic and democratic life. The United States does not have guaranteed right of vacation time, paid vacation time. And that is common in many, many other countries. And we need to have that here. Alan, you mentioned that all of this we just talked about, you said it's doable. And I, I want to believe it's doable because I do believe it's doable. But let me hear from the man himself. It's going to work and it's got to work. Um, look, we are definitely in a circumstance with the climate emergency that we need some serious adjustment of our capacity in this society to address problems and overcome problems and social problems. The United States of America, um, you know, we have a problem with the power of autocracies around the world and the rise and the re-rise of autocracy just about 30 years after supposedly liberal democracy had won the Cold War and history was over and everything was going to be a liberal capitalist democracy. Here's the thing, though. But China is not is not to be um, dismissed. Yes, it's true. They're as they pass us in gross domestic product. They have four times as many people as we do. And so per capita, as they pass us in GDP, clearly it's one quarter, one third as much wealth generated per person. America remains on balance, the wealthiest country in the world in aggregate of wealthy and technological countries. We are the only country, first of all, we, we, we rank at or near the bottom. When you have the East Asian countries, the Western European countries, and a few other countries around the world as uh, the prosperous industrial technological societies, the United States amongst them, on social indices, so many across the board, we are at the bottom. If you take out the aggregate wealth indices, the United States is a really troubled society. Education, the health of individuals, levels of drug addiction, uh, family cohesion, um, depression rates, mass incarceration rates, which, by the way, the continued mass incarceration and warehousing of the domestic population in the United States, primarily, of course, uh, almost exclusively poor people and disproportionately, overwhelmingly so from poor communities of color, is one of the most outrageous ongoing human rights violations in the world, okay? And is something that just, as long as it continues, uh, as long as we have economic dead zones all over the country and in basically every major population center, uh, conspicuous large homeless populations, these all of these things do not exist in almost any of the rest of these countries. So what's the template of those countries? I mean, it's pretty easy to look at the template of those countries and then apply them to the United States. Now, there are a lot of aspects, uh, uh, you know, People talk about the reasons why we don't have that kind of shared prosperity in the United States and that level of, of cohesion. And they, I think they point to fictional reasons. There are actually economic, social, organizational reasons why this is the case. In fact, property values are at the core of many of them. When the Roosevelt and Truman administrations um, 
wrote the constitutions of so many countries around the world that now have that kind of shared prosperity the United States doesn't. One thing they did is they actually limited the capacity, frustrated at the ways in which they could not implement their programs and their social democratic programs in the United States to their liking. An example, of course, being the way that the Dixiecrats undermined their implementation across the South uh, was that they made sure that federal governments in most of these countries, so we're looking at, you know, Belgium, Netherlands, West Germany, Italy, much of Western Europe, of course, South Korea, yes, Japan too, that you had strong central governments. So you weren't going to have public housing all concentrated in one neighborhood, poor neighborhoods. You had it spotted around and therefore you didn't get these economic desert zones which of course was very much informed by American racism at the time, that you were gonna have these economic dead zones because of the inhumanity of American racism informing uh, you know, prop where property wealth was going to be available to Americans in the United States. It was a barrier that at the time American society could not overcome. We have to recognize the deeply racist roots of that. And as a society, we have to overcome them. We have to break up our economic poverty zones and we, have to, and we have to invest in those zones. We have to lift the populations of economic dead zones, which, by the way, are not just in population centers, but are in small towns all across America, and lift those populations up into the middle class. Now, if you want to get patriotic on this, think of it this way. You can look at China and the GDP growth of China as all about the way the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal would look at it. It's investment. It's investment in manufacturing. Investment, investment, investment. Capitalism, yay. Or you could look at it as a country that lifted 400 million people out of the peasant class and into their middle class within a matter of decades. There is no other industrial technological society in the world other than now still China, which still does have hundred millions of people in a kind of very poor agrarian life. Uh, but only the United States among the capitalist democratic societies that are industrialized and prosperous has a quarter to 50% of its population at least living in economic precarity and for the bottom 25% of the population living in at or near severe poverty, you lift those communities up. It does not just benefit those communities. It benefits everybody in the United States of America. And you want to have, by the way, a vision of a prosperous small business market economy, especially in population centers. You look at the places where everything is not corporatized and you have the existence of boutiques, it's largely in the population centers in the United States and it certainly is in the population centers of all these other prosperous social democratic countries across the world. So if you look at cities like Cleveland, Detroit, um, St. Louis, I'm not that familiar actually with the topography of Kansas City, but most American population centers have large food deserts, economic deserts, health deserts, and lifting those populations up into a middle-class life through investment in the community, through the things in the Economic Bill of Rights, and you will have American GDP grow and every American will be the beneficiary of it. So we have to make this happen. We also have to make it happen because quite frankly, um, I mean, there's so many examples you can give. We need to now redeem democratic promise and democratic practice and prove that it can generate efficiently the kind of wealth that can be generated quickly by what China, look what China did. And we have to be realistic about this. If you're a country that aren't among those social democratic, prosperous, industrialized technological societies, you're probably have been uh, uh, experiencing a lot of colonial exploitation mm -hmm. from largely Western European countries for the past century and a half. And the Chinese are coming in and saying, hey, look what we did in 25, 30 years. Look at our model. 
but they're real problems with a totalitarian and authoritarian model when you have to tackle something like the climate emergency. We need, in, we need international cooperation to tackle the climate emergency, and we need things like a free society provides in terms of accountability. We have to know that everything is being checked upon, everything is being done, that no one is really cranking up the coal power plants when they say they're not, and they really are. And we, we need that kind of accountability. And we and look, human beings want to live in free societies. Human beings want to have the opportunity to have a say in the organization of their societies. And that's why we have to redeem American democracy. We have to, again, redeem the capacity of an open society to respond to the historical crises of our time. And the United States of America has been failing to do that. And it's not just the climate emergency. If you have a country with over 2 million people year in, year out, warehoused in a, you know, insane um, and, uh, and inhumane gulag system, that's a signifier of a failed society. The levels of depression, the levels of drug addiction, the levels of crime that we have in the United States, again, almost unheard of. I mean, there's a good amount of crime around the world, but not homicidal crime like there is in the United States. These things can be addressed. They must be addressed. And we as Americans in a democratic society have to do this. And lastly, I'll finish where I started. Let's be honest with ourselves. The Republican Party is not going to do that. We know that. They are uh, at best interested in the welfare of 40 to 60% of the population on a model that just throws the rest of the society away, right? At least the Trumpian Republicans are. I don't know you can quite cast the Mitt Romney Republicans in that evil mode, right? But they, the Mitt Romney Republicans, are pretty much one and the same as the Clinton Democrats. They pretty much, our markets are going to solve everything to a greater or lesser degree. But basically, there's no evidence from that political formation that they want to have transformative change along what I just outlined is what is necessary to have a humane society in the United States of America. And then the progressives do. And so we want to invite everybody in society into the progressive fold. We think we have, just like in Rooseveltian times, we should be getting 70% of the vote. And we want to challenge, you know, free market advocates to, you know, take it up and make their arguments. We think we'll win those arguments. Neoliberalism is a tough nut to crack. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. One of the paradoxes of our contemporary moment after the 2016 election cycle is we had these three large national political tendencies where you had the reactionary um, racist inflected as polite, Trumpian reactionaries on the right. You had the neoliberals in the middle, and then you had the Sanders progressives now emerging on the left. If you actually had them, and this is hypothetical, and of course it's my construction of it, the three groups basically outline their optimal vision for how their system would operate, and then you put them to a vote, it's sad to say that the neoliberals would take a distant third. They simply do not have an animating vision for a society that improves dramatically the lives of the people living in it. It is that status quo, it's that conservative. And I say sadly because I do think the Trumpian right is a significant enough block in this country that they would get more support than the middle group but the progressives will get most of it. Here's the paradox of the moment. Our world, as we live in it, almost to the degree that like it's the air we breathe, is organized by the logic of that middle. And that means, basically, and I don't want to use Marxist terminology because it rightly alienates people, but and I don't think it should be Marxist terminology, but the means of production, let's say. That just is the phrase that comes to mind. The means of production is owned by those guys. That means, you know, all of the essential resources 
of a society that feeds us, that clothes us, that houses us. Those companies are organized along neoliberal models. So they have a lot of, you know, entrenched power and how they fight against this transformation. This is why we don't want to be looking at the Democrats in Congress who maybe we want to beat them in a, in a primary, but if they do sit in, in the house, we have to look at this last session. We're only about 15 to 20 people in the house broke with build back better. And of course the two senators don't get me wrong. I don't think Mark Warner from Virginia. I think there was some Kabuki theater going on there. I think he knew mansion was going to block it. You know, maybe not. And we don't know that we only spec. I can only speculate on that. And so, you know, one of the things is we, a lot of the, the moderate Democrats, when they got into the Democratic game, they didn't really get into it to just be neoliberal hacks. They probably thought they were going to do some social good. And maybe we can appeal to them if they're sitting there and we're, and we have, let's say we do have the majority block of the House caucus that are progressive or in the progressive caucus. We make their proposals, we appeal to them and try to bring them over. And I think the lure is in the neoliberal era, an elected politician was more or less ceding their uh, capacity to improve society to the markets, right? And so we're, we're drawing you back. You, these, these are historical crises. You can really do some good. You say these things you're going to address, your policies don't. Well, here's ways to address them. Come with us. Let's make America a better place. And, uh, you know, let's hope we can win that argument and draw in, create a political majority in legislative chambers all across the country and, uh, and with the executives we can reach. And then, when we don't and they fail to respond, then elect them out of office and let's get progressives. In. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, not knowing the uh, precise socioeconomic or topography of, of Kansas City, but just like everyone else, we have food insecurity, food deserts. We have folks being affected by homelessness. Just this winter, we had someone die who was outside in the snow and they thought they were garbage. I mean, these are actual things that aren't limited to Kansas City, but Here's what Missouri did in turn. Missouri got rid of right to work. They expanded Medicaid. So you can't tell me that these social democratic ideals, these principles, you can't tell me they don't work in Missouri because we just watched them work. And for it to work in Missouri, you got to get rural voters, not just the folks in Kansas City or St. Louis. So for me, there is there's a through there. Now, those same folks may not know or care about or you know what? They probably think negatively of Green New Deal, of Medicare for all. But you know what? This 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, which essentially has all those things already in them, that plays in Missouri. At least I believe it does because we've seen it play. Is that one of the reasons why you all are doing this? Absolutely, yes. Of course, in fact, one of the inspirations was, of course, uh, Professor Kay's uh, video with the Gravel Institute that that came out. Uh, Harvey and I were talking about, uh, you know, uh, he, he, I was privileged to uh, review his draft language for that um, script. And I don't think I changed a word, if I remember, Harvey. I think I might have changed like one colon or something. It was perfect. <laughs> it was pitch perfect. So, you know, Harvey and I have had this incredible dialogue. I've been honored to be in dialogue with someone I've learned so much from who's focused my thinking so much and, and really, I think, improved my performance as the executive director of Progressive. Democrats of America so much, but also, um, you know, the Bill Maher did a piece, one of his new rules about five, six weeks ago now on uh, progressive messaging. And I thought it was a really um, underhanded attack on progressives from somebody who claims somewhat to be a progressive on economic issues because he reduced them to uh, what he has as this negative critique of wokeness and cancel culture. And you can go back to it and find it. I think it even has progressives in the title of the new rule. I can't remember. I was like, okay, this is rotten. And not only that, but realizing this was 
this, this was had traction among the American public. We have to step out and redefine what we're about. And um, of course, the Green New Deal is great, uh, but it's just been vilified effectively by the right wing machine. And uh, we want to try to get something that is uh, that is um, uh, is Teflon coated to take a term from the Reagan years <laughs> against that kind of attack that people can't get around it because it speaks directly to economics in, in large part because economics have been. You know, I'm, I'm certain of it, and I really should go back and research it, but I don't have precisely the time. I'm guessing over the last 40, 50 years, when you take the measure of the Gallup polls and all the polls have been done, what's the leading issue? That economics will be lapping every other issue, right? It goes back to Bill Clinton in 1992, 90, cynically in retrospect, saying it's the economy stupid, right? Uh, we're not literally proposing that we start an effort to amend the U.S. Constitution and add a new Bill of Rights. That's not the campaign at the moment. This is... Uh, an economic bill of rights is a rallying cry, and what we're going to, what I'm going to work with Har uh, Professor K next, and along with one of our researchers, is to just show that this bill does attach to uh, le actually existing legislation, and this is achievable, and it is because we want to show it as the progressive message to draw people into voting for progressives in the primaries across the country. We have some very, very significant primary victories that we can achieve, including at least three where you're knocking out right-wing Democrats, moderate Democrats, corporatist Democrats by very progressive Democrats. And um, we just had Greg Kassar already win in Texas, which is great. And Jasmine Crockett will be a great addition from Dallas. But it's the Cisneros over Cuellar, right? That's a swing. It's a uh, Schrader to McLeod Skinner in Oregon 5. Schrader is one of the toxic 10 House Democrats who were basically mansion Democrats inside the House. Stephanie Murphy's already resigned in, in Florida, so we can have much more progressive, but a very significant race is in Michigan 11. And I point to that because with Schrader and Cuellar, we are knocking out right-wing Democrats and just it's just a game. Either we don't knock them out or we gain. And a really significant race thus is up in Michigan 11, where you have two incumbents, very progressive Andy Levin versus quite conservative Haley Stevens. And this will be a bellwether as to whether this whole logic of the corporatist Democrats, that you must run these right-wing Democrats in suburban areas versus Andy Levin, a very progressive. And the district got split because of the shrinking of the number of districts in the state of Michigan. And so that's a very important race all the way out on uh, August 3rd. The one in Oregon and the one in Texas come up much sooner. So we'll have good momentum, hopefully, for progressives before we get to August 3rd. And then we can continue that momentum through that race and then pick up other progressive gains and just shift the Overton window. Keep on doing it to the, to the left inside the House caucus. Then pick up more senators than, and go above 52 in the Senate races. We can actually shock the world and move some positive leg legislation next time. Understanding it's a hard lift, especially in the House, but the Senate is weighted towards um, Democratic gains and therefore the potential marginalization of cinema and mansion within the caucus. And I want to add to that roster the name of Nina Turner running for Congress from Cleveland. And however much she may not be running against quite the right winger that some of these other progressives are running against, the fact is that Nina has already embraced enthusiastically the economic bill of rights we've been talking about. And she can take that into the progressive caucus, because seriously speaking, we can talk all we want about the progressive caucus. We adore those folks, right? But it's also the case they need a sense of direction. They should embrace the Economic Bill of Rights because that's the way in which working people will start trusting the Democrats all the more.
Okay. I'm gonna throw one more in too, which is Senator Vincent Fort down in Atlanta in yes. Georgia 13 versus very conservative, been there forever, uh, David Scott in Atlanta 13. And that's a very important thing because Georgia is one of the ground zero spaces for democracy around the world. And to have such a solid progressive as Senator Vincent Ford, who also embraces the 21st century economic bill of rights against a conservative Democrat like David Scott, I think can be really transformative towards one of the spaces where I think the American national dialogue on politics is really being defined, which is the state of Georgia. So that will be a great victory, too, if we can get that victory on May 24th, Vincent okay. Ford over David yeah. Scott. Now I'm going to do an intervention here. Uh oh. <laughs> okay, because since I brought I brought this gathering together, one of the reasons that I was really excited about this event is not only because these are my two really good friends, brothers, I would say. Actually, more than that, this is the meeting of a man who grew up in St. Louis with a man who has grown up and is still growing up in Kansas City. He went and got his oh, jersey. <laughs> You know what, Alan? I see your cards jersey, and I raised you this authentic I-70 series t-shirt from 1985. Here's the horrible thing. Here's the horrible truth for St. Louisan. We may even have lost our two football teams, including the greatest show on turf. (laughs) Just won the Super Bowl this year, by the way, but not the St. Louis Rams. And the St. Louis football Cardinals, which I, who I grew up with. We may no longer have a basketball team. We, were, we once won the NBA title with the St. Louis Hawks. And we had an NBA team that was so legendary, there's a great ESPN special about it. And they're gone. And we only have the St. Louis Blues and the St. Louis Cardinals, in part because it's such a crazy baseball city. And, and Kansas City is, is, for people who don't know, I think about 80, 75% to 80% the size of Metro St. Louis. So Kansas City is a little smaller. Uh-huh. And um, uh, St. Louis in various sometimes disgraceful episodes of American history um, was at one point, I think, the fourth largest city in America, believe it or not. It was the major city of the Midwest. And the reason one of the reasons it fell behind Chicago was they could not bridge the Mississippi River on a railroad at that time, but they could up where Chicago is. And Chicago way surpassed St. Louis. So we always look up at Chicago with this inferiority complex and then look down our noses at Kansas City with a superiority complex. Mm. But... Here's, the, here's I'm going to throw you a huge bone here, Hartzell. The definitional event for me in Kansas City versus St. Louis happened at Royal Stadium at first base in the sixth game with no outs in the ninth inning of the 1985 <laughs> series. The very, the very T-shirt that you, that you showed me. And that episode, because my team completely melted down from that point forward, including the most disgraceful performances in sports history in game seven. But we were a little proud. They threw an, they throw a, a game seven temper tantrum in front of the whole world, basically, because they were, the guy who made the wrong call at first base was behind home plate. And But from that moment, it's true, Mike. No, there are no excuses for that kind of meltdown. And what the meltdown that occurred, for people who don't know, um, there was a pop-up in foul territory down the first baseline that basically Daryl Porter, a former Royal, and Jack Clark, our greatest player, they basically looked at each other and went like this, and it landed between them. <laughs> You know, they had ample opportunity to work their way out of the the ninth inning. You know, you know what's funny about that is is that was the closest in the history of a World Series that a baseball team had ever gotten to winning a World Series within three outs ahead in the bottom of the ninth to clinch. And they had never before lost. And you can look it back, all the World Series going back to 1903 to 1985. But the next year, of course, the, the, the Red Sox took it to the max. Two-run lead, not a one-run lead. 
two outs, nobody on two strikes. Yeah, um, and, and the Cardinals, of course, have had a great history, and they went on to win titles after that uh, under Tony Larusa. And the Royals, though, came back really impressively. The Royals, this tiny, sort of tiny market team, is very impressive what they did a few years ago, and it was great. That was great to see them win that a few years ago. And uh, but right now in sports, if sports is the definitional element, you know the, the Chiefs are obviously an iconic team. There's no football team. St. Louis is an iconic baseball team. They got some good players right now, and they could have a good season coming up. Well, Alan, I got to ask you, when was the last time you were in Kansas City, my brother? I've rarely been in Kansas City, but get this: through getting a ticket through a radio station, I went to the. First Michael Jackson tour show at Arrowhead Stadium. It opened up uh, the, the 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 epic Michael Jackson tour with the Jacksons um, after Thriller came out. It was the first concert was at Arrowhead Stadium. But no, I've spent I've spent little time there. Um, you know, in in you know, because I would go, we would go off into Colorado to get away from the humidity in the summer, and we drive through. And um, I've never seen a game at, at Royal Stadium. Never seen a game at Arrowhead. I uh, don't know the city that well. What about yourself in St. Louis? How much time have you spent there? Well, I used to call them St. Losers. I've had a bit of a coming to Jesus moment. I have to realize that we're all comrades together. <laughs> sure, sure. But we are very proud of Corey Bush, of course. Tashara Jones, the, the mayor out of St. Louis now. Great yeah. thing. And Miles Davis and uh, Red Fox and a whole bunch of great St. Louisans. Uh, yeah, not to mention my grandson, Toby. Let's be clear about it. I, look, I, I got I to intervene here. I let it go. I'm not going to. I got to go back to it. Yeah, there is no way that the Kansas City Chiefs are iconic. There's only oh, one iconic team. Go. It is the Green Bay Packers. Look, it is. It's a matter of fact. Hey, I want to call an end to the show right now. No more comments. <laughs> you know, in, you know, recently in English football, there was a game between Chelsea and Newcastle. That was owned. You know, you might have heard that the Chelsea team had their owner stripped of his right to own the team, Roman Abramovich, because he's in league with Putin. Well, Newcastle is the wealthiest team in the history of sports because they are owned by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund now. Oh, jeez. So you basically had the, the, the team that stands for slaughtering the people of Ukraine in the presence versus the team that stands for slaughtering the people of Yemen in the presence. Uh, and, you know, I hate to say this, but American oligarchs are the people who own most of our sports teams, except for the glorious Green Bay Packers. Thank you. Oh. Thank you. See, as much as I want y'all to go check out this piece on the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, also while you're on that tab, click on Alan Minsky's name. Some phenomenal sports writing from my friend as well. That's a whole different podcast episode on itself, my brother. You Absolutely. gotta check out a game together. I, the fourth book I wrote was on the history of the Negro Leagues in sports, of the sports books I wrote, and I was very dissatisfied with my contract for the very simple reason I wrote a book on the history of home run hitting the history of the NCAA men's national basketball tournament that's ongoing as we speak, and 20 greatest players in NBA history. These are sort of coffee table books. I wrote them after college. And then uh, they were getting more and more sociological and political because I was, of course, writing about basketball and the, the, this very strong uh, subtext of race relations in, in the history of the sport of basketball in the United States. And then so they said they saw that that's where my heart was. They proposed this book. Well, guess what? I want to do a good job. I could write the 20 best players in the history of the NBA, history of home run hitting in my sleep, as I'm sure you could, Hartzell. But boy, the history of the Negro Leagues, that took research. It took tons of it. My hourly wage started to plummet down to where I think it came about. So I demanded that they let me finish it on my own terms with more money. They wouldn't let me. They published it against my will. And the last chapter, so I took on a fake name. 
So the fourth book is under a fake name. You let me know when you are ready. And we're going to get you that museum, my brother. We're going to do that. It's so, and it's in one of the great cities for it, too, because the Kansas City Monarchs. Um, by the way, the early... the early, you're, talking, you're talking to the man who's the voice of the yeah. Kansas City Monarchs today. They brought back the teams, the American Association. They rebranded, partnered up with the museum, actually. So it's the exhibit on the road. And they won the title last year. I'd love to go see them. I'd absolutely... And by the way, as we, as we wrap here... There's a real tragedy going on with the um, dissipation of minor league baseball across the country, um, which is a beautiful spectacle in small town America in summer. And it's also devastating to the sport of baseball, which is something I really love, actually. Um, It's a sport that, you know, it's meant to be played. It came out of the Midwest. I know it has some initial roots in the East Coast, but it really grew out of the Ohio River Valley around the Civil War time and spread across the country. It's a sport that's a stop and start sport. It's meant to be played in deep humidity. Because your body just naturally limbers up and therefore you don't pull muscles and stuff like that. And you take a summer in Kansas City and summer in St. Louis, there's not many sports you can play, but you can play baseball. It's a glorious way to spend time with your friends and your family. And it's a great craft. And I love it. I just love it. I played a little bit of uh, what's called corkball in St. Louis, which is a unique St. Louis variation of stickball. This has been fantastic. I know I've kept you so much longer than I was supposed to. Alan, where can folks find you? Give us those handles for PDA, the Progressive Democrats of America. PDAmerica.org. So it's not PDAA because we're PDA. So PDAmerica, one A in the middle, PDAmerica.org. On Twitter, at PDAmerica. And Facebook, at PDAmerica. Instagram, at PDAmerica, et cetera. Check us out. And thank you so much, Hartzell. This has been a true pleasure. And thank you, Harvey J.K. Here's what I'm going to tell everyone, okay? Go sign up. Get on the mailing list of PD America. They've got great Sunday afternoon town halls. Yes, okay, yes, do yes, it. Yes. Do it. Uh, the one with Nina, the one with Jessica Cisneros, all excellent. Yes. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Alan Minsky, Harvey K. I'm Hartzell Gray. That's your KC Morning Show. I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. No, I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more Well, I wake up in the morning Fold my hands and pray for rain I got a head full of ideas That are driving me insane This is shame The way she makes me Scrub the floor Farm no more I ain't gonna work for Man.